to Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Education. I'm Pete Wright, and right over there is Howard Teibel. We are pleased to welcome Grant Lichtman back to the show. Grant is an internationally recognized thought leader on the transformation of K-12 education. He works with school teams to develop a comfort and capacity for change in a rapidly changing world. Since 2012, he's visited more than 125 schools and districts, published three books, written numerous articles, and worked with thousands of school and community leaders around transforming education, a story he continues in his latest book, Moving the Rock, Seven Levers We Can Press to Transform Education, published in September by Wiley. Grant Lickman, welcome back to Navigating Change. Thanks so much for having me, gentlemen. And uh, boy, you make me sound almost as busy as Howard. (laughs) (laughs) I love this quote from your book. We will not fundamentally change education until we stop designing around an operating system that is 150 years old, including not only physical spaces and teams of people, but also the processes, standards, assumptions, and mindsets guides everything a school does. So much of this, and I'm curious both of your perspectives on this before you get into some of the specific levers, that so much of this seems to hinge upon our ability to present information in a way that is convincing, compelling, and transformative, and is able to get on the other side of deeply entrenched ideological perspectives. Yeah. Uh, and and here you are, Grant, having written now three books that attempt to do just that, right? This is, this is kind of your stock in trade. As a guy who strikes me as uh, irrepressibly optimistic. You, you keep going back to the well, and I'm wondering if you've come up with any particular strategies on doing this in a way that's actually working, that you're seeing people are, are starting to understand. Yeah, and, and so let me let me quantify it a little bit, and thank you for saying that I'm deeply op- optimistic. I also uh, am, I, I believe I'm a pragmatist. Uh, change, as, as Howard uh, uh uh, teaches us uh, very well. You know, change happens when a when a sufficient percentage of individuals or organizations move past a certain tipping point. And as I said earlier, I think a decade ago, the number of uh, community education, community stakeholders, schools, et cetera, that were even having this conversation was very, very small. Right. I think that number has grown significantly, and I think that as many as perhaps 20 or 30 percent of education, of, of, of educators, of parents, of students around the country dramatically want the system to change. Now, we see school districts, uh, for example, and I'll use the example of Albemarle uh, County in Virginia, Superintendent Pam Moran, who's an absolute legend. Uh, this is a district that spans from the ivy-colored halls of the University of Virginia to some of the most underserved uh, rural areas of, of Appalachia. Uh, and in by, by fundamentally changing some of what's going on in some of the schools. Uh, They now have pilots and examples. Uh, And she told me how uh, parents who uh, they never never would have even responded to a direct phone call from somebody in the district office saying, you know, we'd really like you to come and talk about how your child is doing at school. Those very same parents now are saying, are, are calling them and saying, what are you guys doing? My kid is all of a sudden really excited about their learning and they want to go to school and they've got, and that my, my son has a younger sibling. I want 
the younger sibling to go to the same school the older sibling is going to because something really different is going on. So they're showing a movie most likely to succeed. They're running a pilot program. They're changing one school in a district. And that creates a positive pressure for change uh, amongst the community of stakeholders that, you know, five, seven years ago, didn't even know that there was a conversation to, uh, to have. 20 years ago, if I described the nature of the work as change management, most people saw it as a discipline. One, they didn't understand it. But two, it didn't have the same importance as financial uh, management, right? It's more than just decreeing a change. It's more than just having a vision and a good strategic plan, but that they have a personal aspiration. They have a discipline about how they're going to engage the people around them to be part of that. And that begins the conversation. And what you're saying now in terms of seeing an emerging awareness I think is part of the culture that the tolerance level that people have for living in the past, I think, is decreasing. I think there's a sense, though, of how can we participate in this? What I see is that uh, at sort of the 50,000 foot level, education writ large is struggling with three fundamental questions. The first question is, why should we change? The second is, what's that change going to look like? And the third is, how do we get there? And each school uh, and district and community is at a different place along that arc. And mind you, some of them aren't even having the conversation at all. But let's let's focus on those that are. Absolutely. The why should we change as far as, I, and, and I say this in the book, I, I, I truly believe that this train left the station a decade ago. And I say this with the greatest respect. Uh, when I hear a or see on a tweet a teacher saying, wow, I just saw this great uh, TED talk by this guy, Sir Ken Robinson, about why we should change. Change, uh, school, <laughs> my head wants to explode. I mean, that, that right. it's, 20, it's 20 years out of, out of date. So where have you been for the last 20 years? Yet some communities are, that's where they are in the conversation. They're still struggling with the why. Yes. Once a community has gotten past the why, and I, and I see that increasingly uh, happening now, then the question is, okay, so what is this change going to look like? What do we want for the future? My empirical observation is, and I think this is reflected by many, many others, is that there is vastly greater convergence than divergence about what great learning looks like. Right. Deeper learning is better than shallow. Inquiry is better than regurgitating answers. Collaboration is better than working by oneself. Uh, you know, those sorts of things are these fundamental parts that comprise great learning. And in fact, the term deeper learning has now, I think, become widely accepted as where this sort of 80% convergence is. And so then that's the second stage is, okay, there's not this huge divergence uh, amongst real people. And I'm not talking about university researchers or people who have a political agenda. But when you talk to parents and teachers and students and you ask them, what does great learning look like? What does great teaching look like? There's a tremendous amount of convergence around these elements of deeper learning. What does deeper learning look like? One of the things that I observe in the higher ed space in that conversation is a recognition that not just because of technology and accelerating change and a discipline that four years after you have a degree, there might be a whole new set of distinctions to learn. So therefore, it's not about capturing knowledge. 
It's not about what what's in the book or what your teacher or professor knows. It's the capacity to learn. It's it's that idea of how do we learn to learn. Once you get out of secondary education, there is an expectation that someone stepping into a vocational school, someone stepping into a research institution, whatever the institution is, is that you have some foundation for learning. I think that's a false premise, that people understand how to learn. They know how to gather information. They know how to regurgitate it back. But we haven't taught people a deeper sense of what I'd call skills and sensibilities. The skill of being able to navigate not just the technology, but what's out there. And we're not giving students the opportunity to do it. Would you also agree that we need to get away from knowledge and more towards teaching a certain competency in learning to learn. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I would urge your listeners to just, just go on and Google uh, Deeper Learning or go to the Deeper Learning Network. And there are marvelous resources there that, that flesh out a lot of uh, what, you're, what you've just articulated. And I try to summarize that in the inter- introduction to my book to sort of define this term of deeper learning. So here's, here's what I, where, where I think we are uh, realistically. I think that there are still a majority of K-12 schools that are stuck within the traditional, what we would call industrial age model uh, that you just described. There is a rapidly growing minority of schools that are transforming some rather quickly to models of deeper learning. And uh, my belief is, uh, and when, when I look out into the future, when I look 20 years down the road, I think I, well, I believe in, and I'm just a, I'm just a conduit for gathering lots of uh, information and, and ideas from lots and lots of other people, a lot smarter than I am. Uh, I think there's a general agreement that 10 or 20 years down the road, schools that have not made this transformation to that deeper learning environment because of the reasons you just stated uh, will be largely irrelevant. Put it this way, we looked out, let's say 20 years, maybe it's 15 years, maybe it's 25 years, I don't know, it doesn't matter all that much. We looked out 20 years and we asked ourselves, how could we synthesize or put into buckets uh, schools, where are they going to end up 20 years from now? We could only figure out three different categories of schools uh, three years from now. There's going to be a category of schools that continue to be successful almost regardless of what goes on in the world around those external forces you were talking about because of some combination of finance, finance demographics, uh, legacy, uh, right. you know, so, something like that. They can do whatever in higher they want. Ed, in higher ed, the story is about the, the elite schools, exactly. right? So you could, if you're in higher ed, if you're the Ivies or Stanford or those, and if you're in independent school, if you're Exeter and Andover, or if you're on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, anything can happen. Yeah. It doesn't you don't matter. need to dis- You don't need to care for survival no. purposes. Exactly. You care because it's the right thing to exactly. do. Exactly. That's that. That's tier. That's bucket number one. Bucket number two is because of this radically differentiating marketplace, the number of choices that parents and families have today that's only increasing for how their child is going to be educated uh, in order to meet their objectives. This you know, incredibly rich smorgasbord of, of learning options that didn't exist 20 years ago. 
there are going to be schools that have that have successfully differentiated from all other options and, and given people a real reason to say, yeah, I want my kid to go to that school as opposed to that school. And the third bucket is the schools that are struggling or failing or have already failed. And we, for the life of us, can't come up with another grouping. And so what we tell, you start this conversation about saying that, you know, five years ago, I scared some business officers. Uh, <laughs> this, this I think, resonates tremendously with both public and private school K-12 folks because they're actually seeing it happen today. Because we can very clearly say, look, unless you're willing to bet the farm that you're going to be in group number one, uh, 10 or 20 years from now, and you darn well don't want to be in group number three, your only solution is to be in group number two, which means you have to figure out what is your, in the, in the terms of Malcolm Gladwell, what's your extra chunky? Uh, what is special about you? What's going to be special about you? And what, why are people going to choose your school as opposed to others? Uh, and that's really the only pathway out. And that's, that is something that resonates with, as you say, it should resonate more with the older folks, even though they're not going to be around, but it sure as heck resonates with people who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are going to be around 20 years from now. That's right. Uh, if they want to have a job. <laughs> that inspires me, Grant. That should inspire people listening to this to say, you know what? I'm motivated. I've got passion to be in that conversation. The people that have that mindset, they can figure it out. But it starts with deciding if you're going to be that kind of person to say, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to focus on what we're not doing. I'm going to deal with the challenges today, but I'm going to put my energy on what does our future look like and approach it with a level of passion and optimism. And, and I take that away from you because I think this is there's no more exciting time in education than today. Yeah. And this is the, here's the last thing I'll say. And I, I hope this is the takeaway from the book. That future seems very daunting and scary to a lot of people. And the reason I wrote this book uh, was to share uh, all of the examples of what's working uh, that are doable in our own schools and communities, even though we we see that future and say, wow, that's kind of a, that's kind of scary. But look, there are folks out there just like you who you can connect with, who you can learn from, that are, have the same uh, uh, obstacles and uh, impediments in their way. And they're they're doing it. They're making a change. They are the schools now that people want to go to. And so there's that's what gives me the optimism is that there's so many great examples out there where it's already working. That's the, the lesson for me. And when you look at these schools that are really successful, I think to a lesser degree in, in higher ed, certainly in, in K-12, it, it really comes down to whether or not you have reached the point where you've mustered the enthusiasm around your mission to change, that change starts to starts to actually uh, happen. Uh, if you if you want it, you can figure it out. Uh, this is, is great. Uh, uh, Grant, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us about this book. You want to you, you wanna tell us where to find it? Give us a setup there? I appreciate uh, y'all having me on, and uh, it's Moving the Rock, and it's it's on, available online through all the major booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the rest. Uh, and it started shipping about uh, three weeks ago. So I uh, look forward to uh, anybody who'd like to communicate with me with their feedback. I'd love to, to chat with them. They can write a review on Amazon, et cetera. And let's uh, keep the conversation going. It's awesome. Grant, you're doing amazing work. I appreciate it, It's Howard. really exciting. Absolutely. 
Uh, you, uh, links in the show notes, everybody, including uh, links to Grant's website. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, links to that TED Talk he did a, a while back, uh, what we can learn from 60 schools uh, on his uh, his journey uh, for the, the second book, hashtag Ed Journey, and, and links to all that stuff in the show notes. Make sure you swipe over there and check out Grant's work. You can read the first chapter of the new book uh, for free online, but you know where else you can read the first chapter? In the book when you buy it, which you should do. Uh, Bottom check thing. that out. Thank you. There we uh-huh. go. Thank you. He's Craig good. Lickman. Isn't he good? He's thanks, good. thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. On behalf of the good Grant Lichtman and Howard Teibel, uh, I am Pete Wright, and we will catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Education. Mm-hmm.